suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello, dear listener. Here is another highlights episode where I've taken bits and pieces from episodes 140 and 141 from back in March and April 2018. So if you're listening to any of the uh, discussions and wanting to find the links that we're talking to, then uh, head back onto the website into those episodes and you'll find them there. So sit back and relax as we present another highlights package because we're obviously doing something else and we can't produce a podcast this week. Anyway, sit back and enjoy. After an extraordinary week in international politics, let's go over to Trevor for the weekly World News Roundup. We've got a few characters who we've talked about on this podcast who are, are popping their heads back up in this episode 140, and one of them is our old friend, Yasmin abdul Majid. Scott, were you aware that she won the Voltaire Award? For a coveted... I did hear that, that she'd, I did hear that she'd won the award, and I then read the article that you sent through. Yes. And, you know, it's one of the few times I agree wholeheartedly with the IPA, actually, when they were opposed to receiving the award. But anyway, um, you know, you just got to look back on her over her record of what she said and that sort of thing, and you just think to yourself, love, you are not in favour of free speech. You want to curtail free speech. So, you know. Exactly. I mean, the Voltaire Award is supposedly named after the... Well, in honour of the quote, which may not have been said by Voltaire, but it was, I I reject what you say, but I defend your right to say it. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And previous winner last year, which we spoke about, was our friend from the Human Rights Commission, Gillian Triggs. Mm-hmm. She won the Voltaire Award shortly after saying... Um, in relation to Section 18C, unfortunately we can't stop people saying whatever they want around the dinner table at home. Around the... Unfortunately. Mm. Yes. Yes, exactly. So she had said, unfortunately we can't stop people insulting, you know, minorities around the dinner table at home, yeah. and she won the Voltaire Award. And now we've got Yasmin Abdul-Majid, who was on the record as saying fiction writers cannot write or tell stories about minority groups that they're not a member of, or any group, for that matter, because that was cultural appropriation. And and they couldn't possibly possibly empathise with anyone other than people who look physically the same as them. Correct, and, and that they were stealing the stories of these other people because there's just a, apparently a finite number of times you can tell a story. So she was actually... 
promoting a restriction of speech as well. So, Indeed. Whoever isn't, we've got to find out. Who's who, in charge of Who the are the people in charge Liberty of this? Liberty Victoria. Can somebody... It, but it says, hang on, Trevor, it mm. says human rights group Liberty Victoria. So yeah. we must be totally uh, wrong because they are a human rights group. Yes, Liberty Victoria. Mm. Yeah. But, so perhaps we've just got it all wrong. Well, it's like these Christian groups who call themselves other things to sort of disguise their real mm. persona. So oh, it's, for goodness sake, the two people yeah. that, they've, that they've awarded this to in the last two years are the, are the most ineligible people in Australian community that I could think of. Not good. Not good. Not good. Not good. It's good. Except it's not good. Dear listener, here's an interesting conundrum. I think this next topic is a tricky one. So um, there was an article in this morning's paper. Uh, Wealthy developer Bob L has been fined $700 after being caught driving at more than twice the legal blood alcohol limit in Surface Paradise. Uh, The incident has left the Gold Coast's richest man deeply embarrassed. Uh, He's a 72-year-old billionaire and he pleaded guilty to being 0.105 on March the 7th and he's been disqualified from driving for three months. $700 fine. The issue here, Torf Man and Scott, is should people be fined according to their income or wealth, because clearly for this guy, $700 is like a handful of change in our pockets, you know, for him. A couple of decent lunches. It's, it's, it it wouldn't cross his mind to be like a cup of coffee. It it just, there's no punishment level in $700 for a man like that. So, um, ethically, should we be fining people who are wealthy a higher amount than people who are not so wealthy? So I've got a link to an article um, from the New York Times on this topic, but um, also a link to an incident in Finland, home of the $103,000 speeding ticket. So... Uh, this is from March the 12th. So effectively, five days after um, Bob L was found with his um, blood alcohol reading on the Gold Coast, there was a guy in Finland, Raima Kuzla, a Finnish bus- businessman, was caught going 65 miles per hour in a 50 zone in his home country. Typically, you'd expect a fine of a couple of hundred dollars at most. But after the Finnish police pulled him over, um, they pinged a federal taxpayer database to determine his income. They consulted their handbook and arrived at the amount that he was required to pay, which was £54,000. Euro. Uh, Euro, sorry. Thank you, 12th man. A week apart, two different countries. Who's who's got the right system here? Well, I'll I'll just give you a little bit more on how that was determined. So Kuzla's declared income 
was 6.5 million euros per year. Exorbitant fines like this are infrequent but not unheard of. In 2002, a Nokia executive was fined the equivalent of $103,000 for going 45 in a 30 zone on his motorcycle. And an NHL, and an NHL player was uh, incurred a $39,000 fine. And what they do in Finland for calculating fines is relatively simple. They estimate the amount of spending money a Finn has for one day. And they divide that by two. And the resulting number is considered a reasonable amount of spending money to deprive the offender of. Then, based on the severity of the crime, the system has rules for how many days the offender must go without that money. So if you were going 15 mile per hour over the speed limit, it gets you a multiplier of 12 days. If you go 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, it's a 22-day multiplier. So... Um, so uh, most reckless drivers would be paying 30 to 50 euro per day for maybe four or 500 euro fine. Um, Finland's maximum multiplier is 120 days, but there's no ceiling. Um, so effectively, you apply that formula and uh, really rich guys like this one end up with a 54,000 euro fine. It's a lot of money. It is. I think it's eminently sensible, I have to say. Of course, I'm on a relatively low income, so it's not going to um, hit me too hard. But, yeah, I've, I've long thought it was. But, but it'll hit you as hard as the $600 fine that you would face if you were caught going home tonight with some speeding infraction or something. Gosh, how many beers have I had? Right, well, I said speeding, so... <laughs> so Look, I, I read a few years ago of a case in Switzerland, I thought it was, and there was a, a wealthy businessman in Switzerland caught, you know, doing some crazy speed in his expensive European sports car. And the fine that I recall uh, in the article was something like around a million dollars. But he was a very wealthy person. But they arrived at the figure of a million dollars because a million dollars even for a wealthy person is a significant sum. It, it has to be an amount that will make the person think twice about doing it again. Scott, what do you Absolutely. reckon? It's, no, I agree wholeheartedly with Paul because you've got, to, you've got to set the fines at a level that makes people think, whole, think about it before they're going to do it again. And if you've got a guy, you know, that gets a 600, well, that guy on the Gold Coast got, what, a $700 fine, plus he got um, suspended from driving for three months. Mm. You know, now he had a billion dollars or more in the bank. I find that fine to be wholly useless for him. It's ridiculous. You know, the, the three-month suspension of his licence is probably going to have more of an impact on him than the fine will. But, you know, the fine should be... And it should be a penalty for people and it should be a penalty for all people and you can argue it that it should be equal but the article the article that you sent a billionaire and a nurse shouldn't pay the same fine for speeding they're right there because they argue that the impact on a person's spending habits is where you should draw the line on it 
So I think the, I'm, I'm on the side of the Finns there. I think they've done the right thing. Yeah, when we you find, know, I, I do think you've got to – sorry to cut you off. I do think you'd probably have to um, give people the benefit of the doubt and, you know, where they – you said that they pinged the um, national tax registry and that sort of stuff and then came out with the fine that way. I do think that you're probably better off setting a maximum level at what the fine can be set by the police and then after that it's got to go to the courts for a determination. Oh, you know, I'm sure something could, like that. I'm sure he could appeal it. One difficulty is that I'd be surprised if a property developer type of guy would actually have that sort of income. Um, you Declared know, it, income. Yes, because normally, you know, it's all held in trusts and companies and, and you know, they really only give themselves enough to sort of... Mm. So you know, the declared income is, is nowhere near their true wealth. So that's yeah, one of the problems with, with using income where perhaps assets might be more appropriate, but then if the assets are all held by trusts and then, you know, so clearly there are ways to get around it. But the idea, I think, has merit. And, you know, when we punish people with fines, the idea is retribution and deterrence. So it's a slap on the wrist for what you've done as a punishment and it's also uh, meant to have a deterrent value where people say well i won't breach the law because i don't want that fine to hit me so there's good reasons under the sort of rationale of of fines as to why you would do what seems on the face of it to be inherently unfair yeah. I, I, you know for a long time thought you know when you when you get a parking fine you know for What's a parking fine these days? A, a, a low-level parking fine would be like $50, $70, something no, like that. No, they, they're expensive. That's the last one I got was $50, right. but that was just in a you know, quiet little back street. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it often occurred to me that rich people would just park wherever they wanted to because, mm. you know, even if the fine was a couple of hundred dollars, they wouldn't care, would they? Yeah. So, so um so anyway, they don't the tow the cars away in Australia like they do in Japan, for example. In Japan, they what won't. Do you mean they don't tow the cars away? Well, yeah. in Australia, if you you know they'll give you a parking ticket. Now, I can tell you, in Japan, if you park in the wrong place in a downtown area of a Japanese city, right. they don't leave a ticket under your uh, wiper blade. Right. They bring a truck and they take your car away. So they do here if it's a clear way. Oh, if it's I a clear see, way yeah. zone. If it's, yeah. if it's a parking zone that becomes a clear way. Then well, in Japan, you know, any, right. any sort of downtown area of a city, yeah. Yeah. they just bring the trucks and they just take them all away. Yeah. Yep. So that was Finland. My four-year-old son has more diplomatic acumen than Trump and he still wets the bed. At least he's not paying Russian hookers to do it for him, I suppose. Great country, Finland. <laughs> I think it's becoming your favourite, isn't it, Trevor? It, it, it is. And uh, apparently, according to a survey done by the uh, in the World Happiness Report 2018, guess which country is the happiest country in the world? Finland. Finland. Finland, Finland, Finland. Country where I want to be. Yeah, so there you go. Finland, happiest country in the world. 
perhaps not for that executive if he just got slapped with a 54,000 euro fine. But hey, if he's making that sort of money each year, he's probably still pretty happy. He's probably not thinking of migrating anytime soon. Yeah. So Finland, uh, happiest country in the world, followed by Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, no, sorry, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Canada, New Zealand, Sweden, and Australia. Yay. So, um,. The least happiest countries are Burundi and the Central African Republic. And the United States came in at 18 out of 156 countries surveyed, um, substantially below most comparably wealthy nations. Yeah. So that's the happiness report. Finland scoring well. I continue with my apologies for the people of Finland. Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I want to be Pony trekking or camping Or just watching TV Finland, Finland, Finland It's the country for me You're so near to Russia So far from Japan Quite a long way from Cairo Lots of miles from Vietnam. And that is the big thing that I think has got going against the Turnbull government is their desire to give $65 billion to corporate Australia. Mm. And you've got the situation that the Business Council of Australia, who's out there banging on saying that you've got to give these tax cuts, they've had their own internal polling leaked which suggested that only 22% of, the, of, the, um, of their members will hand over income tax savings in the form of lower wages, in the form of higher wages to their employees. Mm. So, you know, if you've only got 22% of, the, of them saying that they're going to do that and then you're still banging on saying you've got to do it for the benefit of all workers, yeah. that's crazy. Well, even and more... I, can't under, I can't understand why Turnbull's persisting with it. Even more importantly, Scott, in every country where it's happened, where there's been major tax breaks given to corporations, it hasn't led to any higher wages and it hasn't led to any extra growth and it hasn't done any of the things that um, Matthias Cormann would say has happened. So Absolutely, you can look yeah. at experience in other countries. And when asked directly, you know, um, business um, representatives, when asked directly... Um, if you get this $65 billion tax cut, will you pass it on to your staff in the, in the form of higher wages? They're very cagey about it. No, no, that's what Scott's just saying, that only, only 17 or 20% of them mm. say that that's on the agenda at all. It's no, just going to be... No, it's just... Uh, it's not going to lead to any of that. Increased profits, uh, better dividends for shareholders, that's where it'll go. Unfortunately, according to Essential Report when they polled people and said, would you support or oppose the following tax measures, one of which was cutting the company tax rate to 25%, apparently 40% of Australians supported it and 30% were against. I I don't know. There's other polls that say the opposite. But do you remember the Labor Party's mining tax? What happened with that? The opinion polls fluctuated. Oh. Well, people working working people were persuaded that it was against their interests yeah. for mining companies to pay more tax. Yep. 
But you don't know where work the, it out. You don't know where the truth lies with these opinion polls. But it's scary that Essential, who seems to conduct reasonable polls over time and don't mm. seem to have an agenda, Scott, um, have managed to find a thousand Australians, of which four hundred reported they were in support of company tax breaks. I can't believe it. I, no. I, I find that ridiculous. I find that really hard to believe because all the polling I've read on it suggests that the support for it's in the low 20s. Yeah. Do you suspect that if people, uh, as they say, rusted on Liberal Party supporters and the Liberal Party wants the tax, they just follow the party line? Absolutely. It's tribal. People will say, what's the position of my tribe? And, okay, here, how am I going to justify that position? I'll fall into line and... I'll accept these notions, whether they're true or not. I'll accept trickle-down economics. Repeat the party dogma. Yes. Yeah, that's what's happening. So, I mean, people are running around worrying about what's happening on the Australian cricket team. And meanwhile, Turnbull is proposing to do this. Just quickly, dear listener, there's a link here to an article. 14 reasons why the case for a company tax cut uh, is not a good idea. For a start, it would be giving $65 billion as a tax tax cut. That means we have $65 billion less for schools, hospitals and other services. Of that Uh, amount... You see, according to the the theorists, they're saying that that $65 billion will get spent in wages and that will end up boosting the... uh, That'll end up boosting the bottom line for the government. And that, would be, that and that would be the theorists who believe in trickle-down economics, which is the... Exactly, yes. Uh, it's a load of doesn't nonsense. Happen. Of that amount, $9.5 billion goes to the big four banks. Does anybody really think that the big four banks are going to hire more tellers or more staff because of it? No. Surely nobody thinks that. The big winners are tax avoiders and foreign shareholders. Um, The people pushing for this is the Business Council of Australia, and essentially it's just made up of foreign companies. Um, They're a big part of the Business Council of Australia, pushing for tax cuts. There's no correlation between lower company tax rates and employment or economic growth. It's never happened, and it won't happen. Um... Companies do business in Australia because they want to. Uh, Just 15 companies will share a third of the benefits of the tax cut. Uh, And the article goes on and on with other reasons. And one thing to note was that, yeah, the biggest beneficiaries are the 15 listed companies. It's the big banks. It's... Rio Tinto, it's Macquarie, it's Woolworths and Telstra. Woolworths, they're not going to do anything different. It just, they're just competing against each other. They're not going to be putting more checkout chicks on as cashiers because suddenly the tax breaks are there. It's just no, they're not. It's 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 a complete load of garbage. They're not going to do that. They are. They're a business, and the business has decided that it's cheaper to go ahead and have people do their own checking out rather than paying checkout operators. Yeah. So, you know, it's absolutely crazy that anyone can sit there and say this with a straight face, that it's going to result in higher growth. It's not. 
It's a big worry. Don't let it happen, dear listener. The best like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Twelfth man, looking for a meaty topic for you. I'm going to jump straight to one that, guys, I hadn't warned you about, but I came across this one. The Nagangkari healers. And here's what's happening. Uh, This is an Aboriginal group. Nagangkari healers uh, were considered the treasure of Aboriginal communities. And now their 60,000-year-old tradition has made its way to South Australia's Royal Adelaide Hospital. So what we've got is Aboriginal witch doctors, essentially. Naturopaths, I prefer to call them. Yeah. Who are practising a form of um, complementary medicine, which involves a kind of... um, removing of bad spirits mm. from people's bodies yeah. as part of traditional Aboriginal culture, are being encouraged to be active in the South Australian hospital system and they're being given, you know, assistance to conduct their activities in clinics and, you know, rooms and places like that. And so they're working alongside traditional Western medicine in the hospital system providing traditional Aboriginal complementary medicine to Aboriginal people who might want it. Do you think they're taking a page out of <coughs> a, a leaf out of the book of the, the POMs who for many years have been subsidising homeopathy? Perhaps, but here's Here's the thing. It's actually encouraging a lot of Aboriginal people to come into the hospital system. And while they're there, not only are they getting the traditional Aboriginal medicine, which you and I would consider to be hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, ineffective, but they're then getting some Western medicine where, you know, it's helping them out. So here's the conundrum, 12th man and velvet glove. Do we encourage a system that is on its face saying this is a legitimate practice, come into our system and practice your snake oil medicine because a byproduct is that people actually then get some Western medicine? Or do we say, no way, that's just stupid, you can't have that and... and when you know that probably that would mean less people will actually get help. Gentlemen, thoughts? Um, are they using that as a, a complete alternative to Western medicine? or is No. It compl- is it just, it just goes in on top of it, does it? It goes in as, a, as additional, yep. Well, whatever gets people through the front door, I'd say in that case... But there's a cost, of course, because they're turning over the use of um, facilities such as rooms um, that could be used for other, we would probably argue, more constructive purposes. But if people aren't in the, in the rooms because mm. they haven't come into the hospital because yeah. they're uncomfortable, but yeah. they are comfortable when they know that there is um, an Aboriginal witch doctor there, mm. it's, 
it's tricky, isn't it? I just just gave me an idea, but what do you think of this? We um, we um, make friends with some some religious people, Christians, whatever, like your your friend Chris mm-hmm. down the Gold Coast, and we persuade him that his religion is a little bit hokey pokey and persuade him to give us a room at the back of the church. Now, we get the parishioners to come in thinking they're coming in for the message of the Gospels. Yes. And then he ushers them through to us in the back room and we give them a crash course in the scientific method and why their beliefs are bound to be nothing but superstition and we deconvert them. What do you think about that? So you're you're saying why doesn't the situation get reversed with the hospital being required yeah. out of necessity? I mean, there, there may be something in it. What mm. what I'm getting at, I suppose, is that the people, as Scott said, you know, if they're coming in, well, that that's a plus. You know, uh, if it's bringing them through the door, that's a plus, and maybe they're getting a benefit from the. Um, you placebo know, effect. They could be getting yeah. a placebo benefit. There is, well, people will will argue placebo effect does have an effect, mm. but it might um, introduce them to the benefits of um, regular medicine as well, and um, mm. and then would, they might it, become less dependent on the traditional healing. It would be grating though for a health professional, a, a trained doctor, to to be working in the hospital and then having somebody just waving their magic hands over somebody and and shifting the spirits out of their sore arm that, and and that person being treated as legitimate as a as a health professional who's that would be really you'd have to be very philosophical in your approach to very, it wouldn't you i think the the other another aspect is it delegitimizes Science, in a sense, doesn't it? Mm. Because it's saying, um, well, these people believe their healing techniques are real, therefore we will accommodate them in facilities that are built for real medicine and real genuine healing practices. Yes. See, on the one hand, part of me is thinking, well, if you're going to do that, Internally, you need to make it very clear in the organisation that you consider this to be mumbo-jumbo and that it is only being done because of its ability to get people in the door. But then that's very insulting to the practitioners of this witchcraft (laughs) and they then may not actually agree to come into the hospital mm. if you're as rough and as blunt as that, if you actually openly state, look, uh, everyone, let's be clear, this stuff is nonsense, but we're doing it to get people in, well, then the um, uh, the Aboriginal practitioners may decide not to come in because they're not feeling Do you know one thing love. that caught my eye was the statement that it's 60,000, it's a 60,000 year old tradition. Now that's extremely presumptuous. Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any um, self-respecting anthropologist out there who will tell you that an oral tradition uh, doesn't change Mm. over time. Mm. Even oral traditions change. Um, Of course they do. There's just no way of determining how old uh, what they're doing really is. I mean, it's likely to be 
a few generations old at the very least and could be hundreds of years old. But to claim it's 60,000 years old is uh, just stretching credibility quite a lot. Mm. You know? Any further thoughts, Scott, other than you reckon mm. let it happen? Well, I think let it happen because of the reason that I outlined before. I just think mm. if it gets them through the door, then that's fine. I do take your point that it's a... Well, I mean, I'm more concerned about the feelings of the uh, genuine doctors rather than the witch doctors, mm. you know. Um, so, yes, they could feel disrespected, I suppose, as having this whole mumbo-jumbo being forced, uh, being applied at the same rate as their their medical training. So, yeah, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's that bad. So, Scott, what did, anyway. did you like my idea of, you know, organising a room at the back of the church? <laughs> uh, the organising the room at the back of the church is a completely different thing because that's a private, uh, it's a private thing that's set up by a community group and that type of thing and therefore it's not a, it's not a taxpayer-provided facility that's like a true. hospital is. Mm. Mm, so I think we do have to... Uh, I think we'd have to give up on that one. Oh. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, it's <laughs> possible as a voluntary arrangement. So, Chris, if you're listening, uh, you know, if you, if you were minded to, we would be happy to attend one of your services if we're given some time to actually um, perhaps dissuade your followers from their belief. So that would help sort of them to confirm their thinking that... Obviously, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but that's a tough one. This, this Aboriginal it is a tough witch one. doctor clinics in a Western hospital, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not comfortable with, with how to approach that. So, dear listener, if you reckon you've got the solution to that one, uh, tell us all about it. I only found this article a few hours ago and haven't had a real chance to, to nut out... Wouldn't you love to interview the people who came up with the idea or at least gave approval for it to go ahead? Well, no, because I I know what they'd say. What would they say? Well, they would say people will, Aboriginal people will come into the clinic if we allow this service and they will get overall better health care because of it. Mm. Now, some of those people would have been quite glowing in the ability of this uh, Aboriginal medicine to actually work as well, and some may not, but, you know, it would have been a case of the ends justify the means is is what it's about. I guess. And that's where I fall into that category. I think the ends do justify the means because you've got got people coming in that are getting Western medicine and that type of thing, and the way that you get them in there is to offer their hocus-pocus to them as well. Yeah, but then, you know, we rail against religion... But, you know, sometimes convicted felons in the prison system have a conversion to Christianity and change their life and become, decide to, you know, become more moral people and give up their their burglaries and stealing and all the rest of it because they have a revelation in God now We've been saying these people have no place in the prison system, you know, religious chaplains, etc. But if you believe in a ends justifies the means 
principle, then you would say that to some extent a lot of these religious groups might well be justified in many walks of life if they're going to act as a circuit breaker like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous road to travel down when you go down the ends justify the means path, and I'm, I'm really reluctant to go down there. It lends legitimacy to something that doesn't really deserve that level of legitimacy yeah. in our science-based society. You know? and, and it's an abandoning a group of people and saying, you don't, you don't get the full story, you're not worthy of it, you get a substituted story because that's all bit. we can do with you. Is it not I don't think you guys are reading too much into this. It's, uh, it's just a, I just think it's a placebo to get people through the door, that's, that's all. That's our job, Scott, to yeah. read stuff into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're putting too much into it, mate. So, you know... I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I, I, I like the idea of opening it up to the listeners and see what they actually have to say. Are we, are we not also it's... being a little bit cond? I mean, not us, but are they not also being a little bit condescending towards Indigenous Australians, assuming that they need superstition to get them into direct contact with you know proper, real medicine? Yes, it is. Probably, we probably are, but. Uh, I ends think justify the, the ends means. Justify the means, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Maybe at this very moment we're being conned in some way to do something, but we're not even aware of it. But on the ends justify the means. We'll we'll be happy to believe and continue what we're doing. Saying. Why did you really invite me to join this podcast? <laughs> what was your true motivation? Um, you're a good conversationalist. You've got good ideas. Which simply goes to show there are nutters everywhere you look. I've got a link here to an article by Michael Jensen about the Book of Mormon. And um, Michael Jensen, I've heard on different things... He's full on. Well, actually, what's he is the um, he's the rector of St Mark's, Darling Point, and author of My God, My God, Is It Possible to Believe Anymore? And he's on a lot of radio programs, and he gets a Guernsey on a few different shows, and he's quite full on. I call him Mister Harborside Cathedral. Right, do you? <laughs> From now on. Anyway, he went to see the Book of Mormon, and he said um, he was a bit worried about going to see it. Um, he says, if you're nice and a decent person, does it matter what you believe? And some of the nicest people he's ever met are Mormons. He says, they believe in some of the strangest things of any religion I've come across, including that ancient Israelite tribes built boats and sailed to America, and that there's a planet or a star called Kolob next to the throne of God, and that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from a language called Reformed Egyptian, inscribed on golden plates, that he discovered in his home in New York State. So Michael Jensen says, that's really strange belief. I'm with Michael on that. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, despite the profanity and the satire, the show was surprisingly pro-religious faith as a transformative power to bring hope to the world. He must have watched a different show to the one I watched. I was going to ask you that because you didn't have that same conclusion, did you? (laughs) No. It did not, and it was... The whole premise of the show is that the Mormons, when 
they arrive completely out of their depth and when they try to put forward their normal doctrines, the, the Africans completely ignore them and tell them to go away. And it's only when they start spinning complete lies about stuff that they have any success in converting people and then the lies are eventually exposed. So it did not have a trans... didn't show religious faith as having a transformative power at all. It showed it as being quite deceptive and counterproductive. But you know, Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, so how does Michael Jensen arrive at those conclusions? Uh, looking at the world through... Rose-coloured of, theological glasses. Yeah, reading things into it that aren't there. And uh, he says one of the messages from it is that it doesn't matter what you believe, it's belief that matters any belief. Oh and, and that is one of the songs in there where Elder Price says, a Mormon just believes. And Michael Jensen's saying, well, that was a message, just believe any belief and it'll be good enough. Um, but he asks, is that enough? Is a flaky idea uh, going to make us nicer people. Is that okay? No. He declares, I'm with the atheists, like the late Stephen Hawking here, in saying, no, it isn't. To happily believe an illusion is simply tragic, like imagining you are happily married while your spouse has multiple affairs unbeknown to you. That's uh, an interesting analogy he raises, isn't it? Yes. I wonder what's going through his mind. Well, he says... <laughs> So, so far, dear listener, we've got him saying that the Mormons have lots of flaky ideas, which they obviously have faith Mm -hmm. in, and it makes them nicer people. But is that okay? Is that enough to have a a faith in a flaky idea? And he says, incredibly, that faith isn't the opposite of reason. It is a necessary complement to reason. Oh, for God's sake. That's really... Weak, twisted semantics. And he basically says Ah. his Christian faith is based and complemented by reason and that the Mormons are just wrong and they're believing in the wrong thing on just faith, so they're wasting their time. Believe in a lie and you'll be taken for a fool, he says. Yeah. It is. Uh, He does. He also says the Apostle Paul even admitted this, arguing that if the resurrection of Christ was a hoax, then the Christian faith is a pathetic joke. Michael's getting closer and closer to the truth. (laughs) Keep going, Michael. Uh, You're nearly there. He says here, Easter can't just be a myth about rebirth or a vague story about hope. It's either based on events that actually occurred in time and space or it is nothing at all. Might be the latter. Well, I think it's nothing at all. He says here, that's where I'm putting my faith on the line. I believe some strange things too. A guy rose from the dead, for starters. Pretty strange. But I'm not going to hide behind the take-it-on-faith mantra. Christian faith offers itself up for scrutiny. Either it's convincing or it isn't. So he's, he's basically saying, yes, they are two quite fanciful stories, and I've got the right story. But he says Christian faith offers itself up to scrutiny. Mm. Now, I don't know what books Michael Jensen has been reading, but I've read several books that scrutinised um, some of the historical claims and, you know, claims of fact that the Christian religion bases itself on or claims to be true. Mm-hmm. 
And they've been found uh, wanting, I'm afraid. And so, so, well, for a start, exodus and the Jews and... Complete, and, oh, complete fabrication. I yes. mean, they were out on the building of the pyramids by about 500 years. Yeah. So there's plenty of evidence. I, but thought that, that they, I thought they'd found that there was absolutely no evidence of Jews living in e- Egypt. That's true. Yeah. They yeah. found none. Yes. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. In circumstances where they'd have to find some sort of... DNA evidence yeah. and archaeological evidence, yeah. I mean, anyone is prepared to write this, these two sentences. Faith isn't the opposite of reason. Faith is a necessary complement to reason. Well, you, you just can't go anywhere. Yeah, I know. You just can't go anywhere with that, can you? You really... No, you can't. It's a load of nonsense, isn't it? You have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. That is your only entrance requirement. One of our conundrums that hasn't been resolved lately is the one about the Aboriginal witch doctors in the medical service. And we got some feedback from Janelle, who's one of our long-time, long-term supporters. Good on you, Janelle, for um, A, for being such a long-time supporter, and B, for giving us some feedback. And she wrote about the Aboriginal healers in public hospitals, and she's not very comfortable with the idea at all, and... She said a few things that I'll just try and summarise as best I can, Janelle, was that, you know, they've got limited resources in hospitals and every bit that these people use up is a resource that isn't available for proper Western medicine. And she said that uh, that topic was actually posted in Skeptics Australia Facebook group and she couldn't believe the number of sceptics who were in favour of the Aboriginal witch doctors. And um, she really doubts whether there is a genuine increase in attendance and that the people who are doing it could well have, who are counting the numbers, might well be disposed to fudge the figures, I guess. And in the long term, what's the long term consequence? So in the short term, you might get a few people, but in the long term, what are the consequences? And um, she said here... Let me just see her long-term thing. Um, uh, the long-term impact may be to raise the profile of traditional Aboriginal medicine with the puffed-up self-importance typical of charlatans. They may take credit for a patient's recovery, even though it was actually the chemotherapy. Over the long term, this may have a detrimental impact on health uh, if more people avoid invasive chemotherapy and radiation therapy. I mean, it's a good point. If point. you've got a system that's legitimising this, then that could well happen. Good point, Janelle. Uh, it is a very good point. I still think that um, I still think we've got to go back to the original idea that you get, you're getting people through the door. Okay, on that so on that score, does, she does actually raise she does actually raise a very valid point. Though. Yeah, so. on that score though, Scott, she says here. If anything goes, as long as we get people in the door, why don't we just pay people to attend the medical appointments? Five, <laughs> this is great. $5 a visit, and it will be a more cost-effective scheme than employing a witch doctor, and it doesn't undermine the whole purpose of hospitals in providing evidence-based medicine. Well, you know well, what would work no, even better? Wait, let me just finish it so I don't misquote it. No, I don't think this is a great idea either, but it's better than this scheme, exclamation mark. I, I don't know. I'm, it's convincing. I'm me. actually thinking that five bucks a patient is probably worth it. Yeah. 
I reckon open a McDonald's franchise in the uh, reception area of the hospital. What we yeah, well that could do the trick. I mean, we could. You, you're dead right. Offer some. We need a control group. We need one hospital where they're just paying people five dollars to attend, and another one where they got the witch doctor and see how it goes. And you could be right, Janelle, on that one. I really like that argument. So, scientists have recently discovered that expat tribe members, listening to their musings from both far and wide, have been contributing to the group's well-being and habitat infrastructure through something called Patreon. Some for as little as one dollar a podcast. It really is making a difference, and it's been observed to enrich the tribe as a whole with contributing members experiencing measured dopamine spikes when new episodes are released, and even intermittent bouts of persistent smiling while listening. Ah, there seems to be movement again. If we listen carefully, we may be able to make out the discussion once more. We haven't mentioned a Ken and Malik article in a while, and he is one of your favourites. He is. And he's, uh, I've got a link here to an article from him saying, we've lost our faith in God, but we've lost our faith in reason too. And he is saying that, look, in summary, that um, Western civilization has largely moved away from being religious and initially, with the Enlightenment, people were excited to turn to reason and rationality, but that that excitement and satisfaction is waning as people are becoming less... They, they felt that reason would lead the way to some new form of meaning of life, and that that hasn't happened. So that... People have left religion, they've turned to reason, but they're not happy with that either. And I don't people, think they have, though, do you? On the well, whole? That people have left religion? No, that they've turned to reason. Uh, well, <laughs> they've turned to something else, but I'm not yeah. sure it's reason. Well, They've turned to, you know, short-term gratification of desires. Well, the, th- the issue, though, is that reason hasn't really provided a, a, a meaning of life um, plan or um, outline that religion provided. Mm. People don't have the comfort of saying, I know what to do mm. and, well, also I've got to try the people with me all in the same boat. It's, mm. you know, essentially, yeah, and if you're interested in that sort of thinking, then... That's what the article says. Yeah, his, his articles are always thought-provoking, yeah. I find. Did you like it? I, I mean, I for me, it wasn't one of his best pieces of work, but it was, you know, interesting. Mm. Um, well, he does say that religion is not simply a set of beliefs. It's a means of creating a sense of community, identity and meaning. One reason for the growth of fundamentalism is that all of those things are in short supply today. And and fundamentalism provides that. That remains absolutely true, I think. Yes. And, you know, I mean, if you read the sociology of fundamentalist religion, that's exactly why it is so appealing to so many people, is it provides that sense of community and belonging and acceptance and, frankly, makes them feel uh, as if their lives have some significance. Yes. And 
the other alternative, if you're looking for community, is identity. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons for identity politics is, mm-hmm. well, here's a tribe that I can work with and promote Indeed. and be part of, so and that's why it's appealing, the whole identity politics, yeah, as a replacement for religion. Keying into that same slot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that same need. Which we may never have said before, but perhaps thought. There we go. That was good. That was good, chat. Not a <laughs> Scott. Um, we've got a message from Landon Hardbottom, um, which... Landon Hardbottom is one of my favourites, actually. Yeah, he's good. So, he is good, yeah. So anyway... Um, he's a devoted fan of the podcast too, isn't he? He, he is. Now, he yes. heard our call for feedback on my interview with Chris Lamb, and uh, so he's provided some feedback bottom, uh, some feed bottom. No, Hardbottom. <laughs> Hardbottom has provided some feedback, so I'll just play that now. Fist, glove, hard bottom here. I've just been listening to your Chris Lambie and the New Creation Church podcast. I did ask for feedback. <laughs> Landon, what I, I'll just mention this as well. I have everything uh, lined up on a, uh, on a Chrome browser with all the different tabs, and we just sort of move from right to left on the tabs for each topic. And just to remind me of what we're talking about, if there's not actually uh, an internet link, is I'll just do a little Google search on the topic so that I know, okay, I have to talk about that. So... On this one, I actually did a little Google search, Landon Hardbottom, just to remind me that I had to play that clip. And Landon, if you're listening, well, of course you're listening, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just at some stage in your leisure, um, do a Google search on Landon Hardbottom. <laughs> and, and what you'll find is that the, the first three um, entries on Google are all Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcasts. And, and then the rest are all... Porn sites of one type or another. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, yeah, Landon Landon Hardbottom is, is, well, I think there was a porn star called Landon and then the Hardbottom bit certainly works in that sphere. So, yeah, you'll you'll come up with some interesting search results if you type Landon Hardbottom in. Quite appealing. So anyway, thank you, Landon, for your contribution. We will try to do better next time. Um, thank you very much, Landon, yes. Yeah. What, I haven't mentioned this one to you. This is without notice, this one. But I, I was just in the newsagent killing time, waiting for something else, and I bought this philosophy book and, or magazine and stumbled on some stuff. How about this for a quote? You are a citizen of a great and powerful nation. Are you not ashamed that you give so much time to the pursuit of money and reputation and honours and care so little for truth and wisdom and improvement of your soul? And that is from Socrates. It's amazing how timeless some of this stuff is, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. It is, yeah. That's mm. very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, what country did you think uh, the person was talking about until you came to the name Socrates at the end? It could, could have been any Western... Well, any modern... 
power-hungry, money-hungry country in the modern world. Yeah, that's mm. what I was thinking. Yeah, it could, it could have been the United States, the United Kingdom, any of them. Australia. Yeah. Australia? Yeah. Australia, Careful. mate. Yeah. No, um, Australia is the middle power. We are... You know, we are a middle power, so you know it's um, it's not unreasonable that other countries look up to us. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I want to kick off a little philosophical discussion in terms of way of thinking about philosophy and ethics. And Socrates and Aristotle, it seems, I'm just quoting from this article that it's linked to. Um, one of the classic questions of philosophy is, "What should I do?" You know the trolley problem. What do I do? Flick the lever and kill three people, or let it go and kill ten people, and all that sort of stuff. However, from earliest times, some have argued that this question is less important than the question of what kind of people we should be. If we can become better people, then good actions will follow naturally. So, in the past few centuries, the focus has been on people's consciously chosen actions. But some have found this kind of rule-following ethics to be desiccated. They claim it doesn't take enough account of the emotions and affectations of the moral agent, for instance, or it encourages people to do good deeds grudgingly, even resentfully. Virtue ethicists suggest that we can... Um, so, yeah, so I'm interested in that one because there is a difference between people who work out what the right thing is to do and do it grudgingly or resentfully, knowing it's the right thing. And somebody who is as a virtue ethic such that it's not grudging or resentful, they want to do that right thing because they truly want to. There's two different ideas there. Mm. You know, I'm often struck by the, the claim by some religious people that, um, as we know, a lot of religious people and religious organisations do charitable works. And um, there's this sort of suggestion that they're doing it because their religion tells them it's the right thing to do. But I think most of us would probably counter with the argument that a lot of those people probably would want to do good things anyway, even if they didn't have the religion or, or regardless of the specific religious tradition that they subscribe to. Yeah. So in Chris Lambie's defence, with his group, if we remember, they weren't so much concerned with the do's and don'ts. Mm. They were more concerned with the vibe, yeah. essentially. And with like, being good people. Yes. Mm. And so when people say, uh, you know, the interview with Chris was a waste of time, actually having had that interview made me sort of think more carefully about that sort of distinction and it's cropped up in a couple of these articles. So just on virtue ethics and whether you actually enjoy being virtuous and want to naturally, they say that's something that you can promote within yourself through observance and following the example of inspiring individuals and also through practice. So if you practice being patient, you can become more patient. So these are things that you can actually work on. It's not just innate, is the theory. So virtue ethicists say that that is possible. And uh, the second article that I've got a link to 
again makes this distinction between um, act-centred sort of um, ethics and and the vibe sort of ethics. And the analogy in religion is that the Old Testament was very much do's and don'ts of acts, whereas supposedly the New Testament was the love thy neighbour and be merciful and kind and a more of a virtue ethic than a do's and don'ts. And that Christians reconcile the two by saying, you know, you should feel that you're doing the right thing and if you're not sure, then refer to the strict rules and see how you're going. <laughs> and it might be the same for non-Christians to develop a vibe of of virtue and then refer back to some some uh, Kantian or Mills-type ideas of, of action ethics as a reference to mix the two. Anyway, when we talk about ethics... I thought it was interesting to divide them up. Have you ever seen that distinction before, Twelfth Man? I haven't um, thought about it in quite the same way in recent times. But, look, you know, I think um, when I was growing up, uh, even though I wasn't particularly religious, um, I think there was this general vibe around uh, in younger generations that, you know, to self-improvement and to, to, to become a, a better person was just a good thing to do. Mm. Didn't you? Were you aware of a similar sort of um, idea? Look, look, I was poisoned by a Catholic indoctrination process at the time, so who knows what? <laughs> my, who knows what my feeble mind was thinking at the time? So, well, I was brought up as a as a Presbyterian, mm-hmm. and there was a. I remember Mum. She always used to point to what was written in the Bible and all that sort of stuff. So she was very much the. Um, legalistic interpretation of it all. Yep. But I remember Dad always used to say, well, you've got to do the right thing. There you go. So yeah, your so dad was more the virtue ethicist and, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Malaysia, um, do a Google search on land and hard bottom. <laughs> and, and what yes, Gerald, what's that you're saying? You're doing a Google search? Well, yes, I know it could be me, but it's not me. Well, of course it's not me. Lots of people have a tattoo of a boot on the throat of the working man. Oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not me, Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl? Cheryl, don't, no. Oh, not my John Howard commemorative shot glasses. Oh, come on now. Cheryl, Cheryl, it's not smart. It's art. It's art, Cheryl. It's, it's art. Oh, fist, glove, twelfth man. You've just made it to the top of the hard bottom shit list. Would you agree with this? People in the West tend to be more individualistic. They tend to think about themselves as free, independent individuals rather than as holding sharply defined social positions. People in the East, on the other hand, are more collectivist in general. 
and tend to think of themselves in terms of their relationships with others. Do you say it's right? I think there is quite a lot of um, truth in it, even though I think people in the West probably aren't as independent and, 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 and autonomous as they like to think they are. Yeah, but certainly a, it's a Western idea, mm. the idea of the individual and the freedom of the individual. Certainly in, in Oriental countries there does tend to be a lot more of this consideration of um, the group or the neighbours or the, 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 yeah. the, people, the other people in the office. Japan is the classic example yeah. of that. So you being a libertarian, 12th man... Am I? Do you think it's possible that you've just picked up a cultural relic of, of, a, of a particular um, predisposition towards an individualist notion of the world and how we should interact with each other and this freedom of the individual personal liberty? Do you think it's possible that this is actually... In the same way that somebody brought up in Iran is going to be a Muslim... You know, the fact that you've been brought up in the West, you've adopted a, a libertarian philosophy that you wouldn't have had had you been raised in Japan. I, I would say that's quite likely. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I think your social environment does definitely shape your your ideas and your conception of, of the world, yeah. Yeah. Bearing that in mind, all of our arguments about cakes for gay couples... You think you might change your mind now? Because perhaps you're indoctrinated or no? <laughs> oh, I'd like to think I'm open to persuasion as usual, but um, yes. look, you know, obviously if I'd grown up in Japan, mm. I would have had a completely different experience of of life and you know interaction with other people. And I just know from my experience living there that, Japanese people are much, much, much more conscious of how their own personal actions impact on the people around them. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I even got myself into, well, I, I don't know whether it's, I'd say strife, but I perhaps did some things that were considered would have been considered by Japanese to be inconsiderate or antisocial, like leaving my my stereo on on a timer yep. um, perhaps a little too loud because there yeah. was people living on the other side of the wall yep. going to work, coming home at the end of the day and finding the neighbors sort of frantically sort of saying, oh, my God, that music's been driving us crazy all day. You know, right. Could you turn it down or turn right. it off? And, right, okay. You know, things like that. Whereas in Australia, I suppose people would just come out and abuse you and just say, you right. know... <laughs> yeah. Anything less polite turn about it. Yeah. fucking yeah. thing yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. Music yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the Japanese, I mean, they, they, they simply probably wouldn't have let it happen in the first place. Mm. Anyway... Just sort of making the point that we're very conscious of people being a certain religion because of the place where they grew up mm. and perhaps a libertarian view, which is, which is very dominant in American society, mm. uh, clearly can be equally a result of just cultural influence more so than a rational, a result of a rational thought process that's weighed up everything equally. Don't forget that you, you and I went to you know, Western tradition universities where we were encouraged 
to think for ourselves a lot more. Whereas in universities in... I I haven't been to one in Japan, Mm. but from my interaction with people who have been to university, I don't think they're encouraged to think for themselves to anywhere near the same degree. But you know what? I don't think I was encouraged at university to think for myself, particularly. I I I did a law degree and it was, well, here's what the law is and you just need to know these rules and there's going to be an exam at the end with a hypothetical Mm. situation and we don't care what your personal opinion is Mm. about whether this, what should happen. Tell us what will happen if you walk into a court of law. So it it actually, for that particular degree and probably for a lot of, uh, you know, engineering or uh, hard sciences... In technology, you have to get the numbers right yes. or whatever you build yes. is going to fall, fall down. Yes. You need to have some imagination in design, for example. But uh, certainly my experience was not one where there was great discussion mm. or encouragement for original thought. Scott, in an accounting course, did you were you encouraged to, to provide original thoughts for your fellow <laughs> prospective accountants? <laughs> Um, there was only one subject where we were encouraged to um, think outside the box, and that was income tax law. Uh, the rest of the rest of it was um, very much follow these rules and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you know, it depended on what electives you took to, and that sort of stuff. That you might have had some. There might have been some uh, think for yourself type of thing that came in, but I didn't. Those electives, I just, I just did the law and that sort of I stuff. Might and have, moved on. Yeah. I might have just been lucky. Look, I had this really terrific political science lecturer, and I'll give you an example. He said that he he told us one day. He said there was this this uh, young Japanese exchange student in in the uh, tutorial, you know, and uh, it was it was you know he was asked to do his little tutorial or whatever. And he said this young Japanese guy got very frustrated and a little bit perturbed and he said to this political science teacher, why do you keep asking me what I think? Why don't you just tell me what I should be thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yep. So there you go. That that, that was the impression I got. There's a lot to be said for the... Now, in America, when you do a university degree, you, you do a general sort of arts style of initial degree for two years or something. In Japan, too. And then yeah. only in, the third or fourth or fifth years that, that you're doing then your, mm. your chosen specialty. You do a kind of general studies uh, course yes. to prepare you for your area of specialisation. Yes. yes. I think that's not a bad idea, and they do that in Japan, do you know? Mm. In a, a, typically, if they haven't changed it since I lived there, typically a, a standard four-year university degree course, the first two years are general studies. Yeah. And after that, you specialise. Even for doctors, and I had a, a young guy who was a medical student at Kyoto University who came to me for some English lessons for a little while, and he was still doing his first two years of general study, so he wasn't studying medicine at all for the first two years. Yeah. I, I personally, you know, on reflection, I, I came to the view that that was probably a good thing. 
treasurer, Scott, Absolutely. In, a, in an Iron Fist Velvet Glove government when you were treasurer. Can we afford to uh, tack on a year or two to university degrees and, and well, minister yeah, for education? What you've got to do is you've got to cut out the garbage that goes into a, into a standard degree. Right. You know, <clears throat> I did a three-year degree when I did my degree, and it could have been cut back by 12 months. Yep. So, you know... I think that if you're going to have that general studies idea first, which I like, I do like the idea of having two years of general studies, then after that you've then got a standard three-year degree should be a two-year degree where you just specialise and get the hell out of the place as quickly as you can. Mine was a social science kind of degree, and the first year was called foundation year, and everybody did the same things. We all did the same, you know core courses in things like political science, anthropology, sociology, history, economics, Mm. whatever. So we all did a foundation year. And then in the second and third years, we chose whichever electives uh, we thought uh, appealed to us. Yeah. Yep. And I think it worked. I think it was good. Mm. Fist, glove, you two have not experienced horror until you have experienced the full weight of a hard bottom crushing you. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.